This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans about their very first work experience, what it was, what they learned, how it helped them get to where they are today, and oftentimes funny stories from that very first job. And if you have a first job story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information, and we can help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Our first story is from a Chicago mom we once interviewed named Kathy Hamilton, a mom who fought and defeated the corrupt political machine at her local community college, the College of DuPage. Like we do with every guest, we also asked Kathy about her first job. I actually enjoyed my first job. I know I was a a clerk at a grocery store, and back then you used to actually have to type in the price of every single item. Mm. And I enjoyed that pace. It was was fast. It was fun. It was quick. And I became very good at the the 10, they used to call it the 10-keypad. So that, that really helped me because later on in life, I had to do a lot of uh, input, number input, inputting of numbers. And, you know, as a, as a financial person and also as an accountant, that became in handy. So that came in handy. That skill, that dexterity was a good thing to develop. And also, you know, I'm a violinist, so I enjoyed working with my hands. It, it really worked well with being a violinist, being an accountant, and using that keypad. It, it taught me a lot. And someone else who started out as a grocery store clerk, Yahoo CEO Marissa Meyer. Marissa once reflected on the experience saying, quote, I was a checkout clerk in the county market in Washaw, Wisconsin, a summer job when I first turned 16. Many of the cashiers had years of experience and were very committed to their jobs. So I saw firsthand the importance of a great work ethic. I learned that speed mattered. They measured our items per minute rate during each shift. And the only way to be eligible to work on express lane was to do 40 items per minute consistently over an eight-hour shift. Meyer has needed this work ethic from her first job. She now works 130 hours every single week. Well, now on to someone a little bit more famous than Kathy Hamilton. To lighten things up, let's hear from comedian and actor Chris Rock, who didn't like one of his first jobs at all but it taught him what he definitely did not want to do with the rest of his life and gave him the inspiration to do what he does today. Routines like this one. This ain't really work, though. This is not really work. This is my career. It's not really a job. This is my career. You know, some people have jobs. Some people have careers. Some of y'all in the audience. Some of y'all got jobs. Some of you have careers. Now, the people in the audience with careers need to learn to shut the fuck up when you're around people with jobs. They don't want to hear your career bullshit. Keep that to yourself. Okay? Don't let your happiness make somebody sad. Because that's what it does. Nah, nah, man. But I, I used to work. I used to have a job. I used to work at a Red Lobster. I used to work at Red Lobster. And on Queens Boulevard, is a, I was... Um... Oh, I served you. Good, good. Uh, no, no, I was a, I was a dishwasher, 
used to scrape shrimp in the garbage cans and then load up the dishwasher, man. And that was my real job. I never got a raise. I never got a promotion. They kept me in the back. They kept me back there because I had really f***ed up teeth. And they didn't want people to think that shrimp f***ed up your teeth. And that's what they do at restaurants. They put the ugliest people in the back. So if you don't like the people in the front, you don't want to see the people in the back. <laughs> And that was my real job. I, was, I wasn't working my way through school. I wasn't working my way and telling jokes. That was my life. 1989, I was scraping shrimp, okay? And people go, Chris, how'd you end up like that? How the f*** did that happen to you? Minimum wage job? I'll tell you exactly how that happened to me. I dropped out of school in the 10th grade. Dropped out in the 10th grade, which is the dumbest thing you could ever f***ing do. You know why? Because when you drop out in the 10th grade, you really might as well have dropped out in the second grade. <laughs> Why? Because you qualified for the exact same jobs. Matter of fact, the person that dropped out in the second grade is more qualified because they have eight years of work experience. <laughs> yeah, man. We used to scrape those f***ing shrimp, man. To kill me, but I'll tell you this right now. now. Now I have a career. I've been blessed with a career. So if you got a career, thank God. If you got a job, I hope you get a career one day. That's right, because when you got a career, there ain't enough time in the day. There ain't enough time. When you got a career, you look at your watch, time just flies like, God, whoa, it's 535. I got to come in early tomorrow and work on my project, because there ain't enough time when you got a career. When you got a job, there's too much time. That's right, you look at your watch like, ah, shit, 908. <laughs> you don't even trust the time when you got a job. You be like, what time you got? 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 915? Whoever got the latest time is the right time. He got the right time. He got the right time. You ever played a time game with yourself at work? You ever play the time game where you go, I'm not going to look at my watch for two hours. That's right, I'm going to sit here and scrape these shrimp. Scrape, 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 scrape. Okay, hours pass. Maybe I should look. It feel good. Nah, f*** that. I'm going to wait a whole nother hour. All right, two hours pass. Time to look and feel good about myself. And you look. Fifteen minutes. And that's Chris Rock's take on work versus career. First jobs. It's a segment we love to do every week. And. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can catch all of our work on everything at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and it's time for our regular Final Thoughts segment, where we hear final thoughts from people who are dying, and also final thoughts from folks about their loved ones. A eulogy, a written tribute, anything that stirs the soul. This week's Final Thoughts feature comes from the man who turned around Columbia Pictures and who was a commissioner of Major League Baseball. And in 1989, when Faye Vincent, because that's who we're talking about, was the commissioner, the Loma Prieta earthquake struck San Francisco when the World Series was being held there. And he needed the help of many people. And one man in particular came to the rescue. Well, Faye Vincent wrote a tribute and paid tribute to this man. And let's take a listen. I intend no disrespect to either Dave Stewart or to the Oakland A's, but for me, the real hero of the 1989 World Series was Commander Isaiah Nelson of the San Francisco Police Department. A week ago, Commander Nelson was killed when his motorcycle crashed into a cement barrier on Interstate 280. The earthquake on October 17, 1989, was a significant disaster. But like most disasters and most tragedies, it had its unexpected benefits. I grew to know, respect, and admire Commander Nelson. And by the time I left San Francisco after the fourth game, I considered him a friend. His death is therefore a personal loss, and I will miss him greatly. I met him first at the 1989 All-Star Game in Anaheim. I next saw him on the field at Candlestick before the earthquake. He was in charge of the police at Candlestick, and he cut an impressive figure in his motorcycle uniform. He was trim and ruggedly handsome, and part of his allure, I am sure, was his appearance. As we chatted idly before the game, neither of us could suspect what was about to happen. And when it happened, Commander Nelson quickly and effectively took charge. My recollection of the moments after the earthquake focused on him. He was calm, fully in charge, crisp, and incredibly helpful. He came immediately to my box at the edge of the field to give me the early reports on the damage. As information about the disaster reached us, he was careful to give me what limited facts he had and to answer my questions clearly and precisely. He knew his job and he was sensitive to mine. Our first major problem was that the auxiliary generators were not connected to the public address system. That is an oversight that has since been corrected in every major league ballpark. One of our principal objectives was therefore to get information and instructions to the crowd. Acting in part on Commander Nelson's advice, I quickly called off the game. Just as quickly, he produced a squad car in which he circled the field and using the car's loudspeaker told the crowd the game had been canceled. In clear but authoritative tones, he directed the fans to leave the ballpark in an orderly fashion and to remain calm. There is no doubt that the remarkable evacuation of that ballpark that night a thing that brought great credit to the city and to its people, 
was due in great measure to the superb leadership of Commander Nelson. For the next hour or so, I remained in my box while Commander Nelson, working closely with the giant personnel, supervised the fans' departure. Information about the magnitude of the quake continued to reach us, and we became increasingly aware of the size of the disaster. Commander Nelson stayed on the field and remained in touch with police headquarters while continuing to monitor activities in the ballpark and in the parking lot. When the ballpark was nearly empty, he offered to get me to the hospitality tent outside the park and he politely suggested I wait there a few hours until he could figure out a way to get me and the others back to the hotel. During the next several hours, he periodically appeared with updates on both the situation in the ballpark and within the community. After a few hours, he told me that he was going to move his command center, a huge van full of communications gear, to downtown San Francisco, and he offered to include my car in the caravan his officers would escort. The ride back to San Francisco that night was eerie. As we proceeded, we could see fires burning in the distance, and the blackened city, unlit and smoking, presented an unforgettable image. In the car, we were stunned and quiet. Driving through MC streets and seeing people standing in shock on corners made us feel inconsequential and mindful of the awesome power of the earthquake. After an uneasy night in our hotel without power and water, we convened a conference the next morning attended by representatives of every organization with something to contribute to our decision on the future of, in my terms, our modest little game. Present was Commander Nelson, looking as alert as if he had expended a quiet evening in his den. When I asked him what he thought the police might be in a position to return to duty at Candlestick, he gave me a straight answer. He didn't know. And so began the period in which we waited for Mayor Art Agnos of the city of San Francisco and its able police department led by Chief Frank Jordan to tell us when baseball could properly and prudently resume. In the weird press conferences that occurred during the next several days, candlelit and somber as they were, I asked Commander Nelson to report on his predictions on police availability. In those circumstances, he was as effective and crisp as he was on the field after the earthquake. This man simply knew what he was doing. He was a professional. All of us quickly learned that he was better at what he did than we could ever be at our duties. And so we admired him, all of us, with the respect that flows to a professional do his job at the highest levels of proficiency. Of course, we played the World Series due in large measure to the sensitive cooperation of Mayor Agnos, Chief Jordan, and Commander Nelson. 
And when we returned to Candlestick to resume the World Series on that wonderful Friday night, Commander Nelson and I shared the special satisfaction of having persevered through a difficult time. We had shared the equivalent of a battlefield experience. And in that bonding that occurs under such circumstances, Commander Nelson and I forged a relationship that each of us knew was unique. When we parted after the fourth game, and I tried to thank him for all he had done, he gave me the diffident response that comes naturally to the truly heroic. Guys like Commander Nelson are difficult to praise, and they're more difficult to thank. But I tried, and I think he knew he was special to me. Thus, when I learned of his death, I felt the loss of one that one feels at the at the death of a dear friend. I will not forget him, and we will not forget Commander Isaiah Nelson either. Bringing you his story on his birthday and day of passing every year, what a tribute from Faye Vincent. Paying tribute to an ordinary man, and yet a hero, a man who just did his job, as Commander Nelson would say if he were here with us. Again, if you have a final thoughts tribute, we'd love to hear them. Give us a call at 844-627-8255. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. To hear all of our final thoughts features, go to ouramericannetwork.org. American Stories, and we're back with one of our favorite topics, Random Acts of Kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with friends, with family, with kids, because in the end, the media wants one thing. It wants blood, it wants tragedy, and it wants, it wants controversy in the end. If it bleeds, it leads. Um, but we think differently here in Our American Stories. And today, also, as a part of National Police Week, we want to focus on cops and their random acts of kindness, because too often we hear about extreme stories, either extreme bravery, uh, a cop doing something heroic uh, and saving a life, and we hear about some of the bad things periodically that cops do, but the great middle, the great majority of the of wonderful things cops do every day that no one talks about, no one writes about, no one reads about, that's what we want to focus on here. But first, we wanted to 
share a few stories before we bring on Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. Let's start first with a story about a cop, a father, and a trip to Walmart in Westland, Michigan. You may remember hearing a story just like this a few weeks back, but that was a different officer halfway across the country, which just goes to show the overall character of Americans, men in blue and women. When Levante Dell was pulled over in his Impala Monday afternoon on Warren Avenue, he thought, oh no. When he hit the lights, that's I did what everybody pretty much does when they get pulled over, heart drop, went to my stomach. Dell figured it was because of his tinted windows, and he was right. But when Westland police officer Joshua Scaglioni walked up to the car, he saw something else. Dell's three-year-old daughter, Lauren, was not in a car seat. I asked him, why is she in there without a car seat? It's unsafe. And he teared up a little bit, explained to me that he's going through some tough times. When he asked me, do I mind stepping out the car? I, <laughs> I was really expecting the worst. But that's when something really great happened. He actually talked to me. He asked me what was going on. And I, I broke everything down to him, like why I'm in the position that I'm in and why money is tight. I related to it. I related to the fact that I've been in that situation before. And I said, you know, to myself, this is a perfect opportunity for me to help this guy. So this rookie officer didn't give Dell a ticket. Instead, he told him to follow him to Walmart. And as they walked through the aisles heading for the car seat section, Dell says he didn't feel like he was with someone he'd just met. You would have thought we was best friends, like we knew each other for a while because it wasn't uh, awkward silence. We was talking the whole way. I learned about him. He learned about me. He seems like the blue-collar, hard-working guy, uh, and he's doing his best he can for his family. And then another surprise. Officer Scaglioni reached into his own pocket and bought this car seat for Dell's daughter. I thank him from the bottom of my heart. Dell says they parted ways before he realized he didn't get Officer Scaglioni's name. That's one of the reasons he posted the story on Facebook, and it has since gone viral. I feel he should get the recognition that he that he deserves. Like, everybody should know what he did. So now little Lauren has her car seat. Thank you. And her father has a newfound appreciation for police. Don't judge a book by its cover, man. You'll be surprised what come out of it. It wasn't my intention. I never thought that this was going to happen. Never thought that I'd be talking to you. <laughs> but I am. And I, I really hope that this uh, has changed a lot of people's perception on us. Officer Scaglioni, well, everybody now knows and, well, there are so many more stories like it. We want to bring you another one from a very different state, a very different season. This one, Bethel Park, Pennsylvania, just south of Pittsburgh. But the spirit, identical. It was an act of kindness after an emergency situation. Police helping a man who had just suffered a heart attack and then set out to finish the job he had started. The post has been viewed thousands of times with the hashtag people helping people. It may not seem like much, a couple of officers with shovels in their hands, but it was much more than that. It was, it was just, uh, just something we, you know, police officers do every day. It was just somebody happened to just take a picture and notice it this time. It was here along Stonewood Drive in Bethel Park where the 75-year-old man went out to clear the driveway after the first round of snow yesterday morning, but he collapsed suffering a heart attack. We hooked up an AED and uh, Officer Gorman started doing compressions and while he was doing that, the paramedics then arrived and they, and they took over. With the medics rushing the man to the hospital, who was at that point now conscious and speaking, his wife following behind the ambulance, the three officers left at the house, Officers Minson, Beer and Gorman, picked up the tools left behind and got to work. I suggested why don't we finish the driveway and they're like, 
Yeah, let's do it. We grabbed some shovels and a broom and finished shoveling the driveway along with a neighbor across the street actually jumped in and, and helped us too. It was a simple act of kindness, says neighbor Sarah Chikis, but it did not go unnoticed. To see that, you know, there are good police officers out there and who are willing to step up and go above and beyond who, you know, didn't have to do that at all, but, you know, took the time to, you know, out of their day to, t to help her and to help, you know, the family in whole was a great thing to see. The picture posted on Bethel Park Police's Facebook page has hundreds of comments. Officer Minson says it's amazing to see the response, but what they did was not out of the ordinary. But if it wasn't for that, you know, most people would know officers do stuff like that every day. Indeed. And this one and the last one, and then we'll be joined again by Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. This one starts off so normally. But soon, as you'll see, it will deeply impact one young man. This one from San Diego, California. 36-year-old officer Jeremy Henwood ordering his fast food dinner inside a City Heights McDonald's. It's seemingly ordinary surveillance video except for what happens next. Watches the officer is approached by a young boy. I was looking around like, how am I do this? How am I going to do this? And then I went up to him and just asked him. 13-year-old Davian Tinsley needed 10 cents. I just seen him a tall officer. He looks pretty nice. So he approached the officer and asked him, to which Henwood replied, What is the money for? And I said, cookies. And then he said, okay, I'll buy them for you. The video carries the haunting reality of a nightmare waiting literally around the corner. Officer Henwood was shot and killed by a shotgun blast. The McDonald's bag unopened in the back seat. Wow, that's amazing, huh? Today, Davian and his dad watched the video for the first time, their eyes glued to a scene they'll never forget. Character is, what you doing when nobody's around with yourself? How you acting when nobody's around? Friends of Henwood say this final act of kindness caught on tape is how he lived. He was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an NBA star. He said, that takes hard work. For Davian, those words are now part of who he is. He tells me to work hard, I'm going to work hard. Jerry Tinsley aims to make sure his son follows through on that promise. We have all have role models, and I'm going to make this, um, this officer, this fallen soldier, out of his role model. You know, every day he go to school, he's going to remember his fallen officer because he was the last person who talked to this, this man. A man who served his country and community until the day he died. The proof is on video and in the untold future of a 13-year-old boy. And that's what we're doing today, National Police Week, and also Random Acts of Kindness. And this officer, Jeremy Henwood, he had served with San Diego PD for four years, and he was also a captain in the United States United States Marine Corps. And boy, is there a lot of that crossover, men who've served their country and women who've served their country, and then they want to come back and just continue serving. And they almost don't feel comfortable doing anything else, going into harm's way and just... You know, putting themselves between bad forces and good forces. And this is such a tragic and senseless loss. But we can celebrate the character of this man uh, who never thought twice about helping out even a kid who needed a dime for some cookies. And uh, just remarkable storytelling. When we come back, Houston PD Union President Ray Hunt. This is Our American Stories. And again, randomactsofkindness.org is where you can find so much of this great work. And here at Our American Stories, you want controversy, you want people screaming and yelling at each other, you got the wrong station. But if you want great stories, and by the way, great commencement addresses all month this month, General Pete Paces at the Citadel. Take a listen. 
put your family around the radio when you listen to it because you're going to learn from a great man what sacrifice looks like, what service looks like, and what leadership sounds like. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, Ray Hunt. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to do random acts of kindness. We do it all year long. But we also want to celebrate National Police Week, which is this week, and all the men and women in blue who put themselves in harm's way. And we wanted to be joined by and are joined by Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. Ray, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. You know, Ray, you know, people tend to hear about uh, things that happen when police encounter civilians in the media only through ex- what I call extreme events or outliers. Uh, talk about how this, how the, the media coverage affects the morale of ordinary cops on the beat uh, and in the street. You know, uh, the, the bad things that, that they want to show in the media all obviously sells newspapers and, and sells uh, ads on TV and radio, but uh, the, 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 the morale that, that does to police officers whenever they see these things, they realize that they're picking out that small segment of the, of the police community that, uh, that aren't doing the right thing every day, all the time. And rarely do you see these acts of kindness taking place. But let me just tell you, the things that I just heard that you were reporting, those things happen hundreds of times a day, if not thousands of times a day across this nation. Very similar incidents happen just like that here in Houston. And I assure you that it happens at all police departments across this country. Officers don't call the media and say, hey, let me tell you about this. Just like I didn't call y'all and ask y'all to be here today. Right. You y'all contacted us. We, we, we police officers aren't going to go out there and pat themselves on the back and say, hey, look what I did. That's not what we're supposed to do. The individual that was shot after he bought the kids some cookies, we probably would have never found out about that incident had he not been killed because that's when they went back to trace his steps to find out what happened prior to this. But those things happen all the time. You bet. And in, and in Houston, Look, there are, there are forces that are under the lens even more because some neighborhoods are tougher to patrol than others. And the contact with civilians can sometimes be tougher. Um, an ordinary cop's life in a suburb and an ordinary cop's life in a, in a big city are very different. Three of my best friends uh, went through law school and then went to the FBI. And they are brothers. And the, half of the other family are NYPD. And I've walked in those shoes. I've taken rides in those cars. And my goodness... I didn't realize, sir, that every time a cop steps into a domestic dispute, every time he answers a call, even a pullover, a car pulled over, I'd never seen it from the cop's point of view before. I had always seen it from the, from the 
I would call it the suspect's point of view, because when I would get pulled over, I'd be sitting there going, oh, <laughs> what did I do? What's going to happen to me? Damn it. Um, I wasn't thinking, oh, good, cheerio, I'm just getting pulled over. Uh, do you think it would benefit more Americans if they were to walk in the shoes of an officer for a day? No doubt, no doubt about it. I, I trained officers for 15 years on night shift, and and I used to tell rookie officers that when you're walking up to a car, if your if your heart doesn't start beating a little bit faster than it did before you stop that vehicle, you probably should leave this job. You never know what you're about to encounter, and people automatically assume that when an officer walks up to that car, that they're calm, cool, and collected. That officer has no idea what they're about to encounter. That officer has no idea if that simple traffic stop is about to turn into a deadly short force situation. Um, that officer has no idea when that silent 911 comes from that house, whether somebody's just mistakenly dialed 911 trying to do it, do an international operator, or if someone's just pointing a gun at somebody in that house and is about to kill them. All of those things have to happen, and, and it's an extremely dangerous job. But most officers do this job because they want to help people, and that's where these random acts of kindness come from. The officers have big hearts, and when they see somebody hurting, they want to try to help that person, especially when there's children involved. And you're so right. Uh, just as I have never met a, a soldier who toots his own horn, and we yeah. learn, and we're we're coming up on Memorial Day and D Day. And if you remember when Stephen Ambrose finally wrote Band of Brothers, he was finally able to cack, crack the code and get these men to talk about their acts of heroism and bravery, and they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it because they just said, look, I was doing what I was supposed to do. And by the way, the real brave people are the dead ones. And so yep. there's a different sort of honor code with, with these guys who serve. But if you could, because you're a representative of these men and women, tell us a couple of the stories that you know of in your own police force. Share, with, share a few of those with our audience if you could. Well, the story with the car seat uh, reminded me of a situation that, that we had here in Houston. And one of our local reporters who we have a great relationship with had encountered a, a lady with some kids in a hotel room. It was around Christmas time. She had no gifts. She co contacted us and said, you know, is there any way you all, you all might be able to get some gifts over here? We have a Blue Santa program. So we took gifts over to the hotel room, gave her a business card, and said, if you need anything while you're here in Houston, give us a call. The very next day, she called, and she was on a traffic stop, and one of our officers had stopped her because her child was not in a car seat and she had an expired red, uh, inspection sticker. Officer talks to her, and he goes back to start writing the ticket, and she makes a phone call, and she's crying, and she tells us, she said, I just got stopped by this officer for this, this, and this. So when the officer comes back, he's the uh, our officer here at the union said, would you put the officer on the phone? So he gets on the phone, and, and we tell him that, hey, we just kind of adopted this family. They're really going through some tough times. We took them gifts, et cetera, et cetera. That sergeant took her over to Walmart to buy her a car seat for that child, and told her that she needed to get an inspection sticker. She said she couldn't because one of her front tires was bald. He took her back over to the Walmart in the back to, to buy her a tire. Walmart manager found out about it, and he said, you know what, that other front tire looks bad. I'm going to pay for that one. So this sergeant not only bought her a car seat and a tire, but also got her got her on the road. And and those kind of things happen all the time uh, that, that don't get reported. Yeah, and, you know, my dear friend, and his name is Carl Bazin, and we always called him the Amazing Bazin because he had this incredible law degree. He could have done anything in the world, made all kinds of money, and, well, he just wanted to serve the public through the FBI. And his father and his two brothers, my goodness, one was a transit cop, two were detectives, and I just loved hanging out with these men. And, again, so self-effacing. The things they did every day in the neighborhoods were wonderful. I wanted to talk a little about you. You've been a, 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 in, in the force since 1989, a UT Austin graduate. What's day-to-day -day policing life like? What's the life like? What's an ordinary day like, like in the life of a cop? It, it, it's never boring. 
Um, you never know whenever you put that uniform on and go out there for that shift what you're going to encounter. Uh, it's a very rewarding career. Um, it can be it can be morale uh, lowering whenever you see certain things on TV, but most of the time you feel like you're doing a good job and you you feel good about the job that you're doing. And and most officers have that feeling. Um, our officers enjoy being police officers. We're blessed to have a community that supports us. Ninety five percent of all races in our community support the police. We're a very diverse police department with 51% minority. We've got a command staff that reflects the makeup of our community. And for all those things, I believe, are the reasons that, that we don't have the riots in Houston, Texas, that other cities have whenever whenever things explode. But uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great job, a rewarding job, can be a fun job, but it's also very dangerous, and we also understand that. We've had 113 Houston police officers been killed in the line of duty since the inception of the Houston Police Department, and that's 113 too many. It is. And there are, by the way, 5,300 officers in the Houston PD, and they police 2.2 million people and cover, and Houston is such a big city, but I had no idea it was this big, 600 square miles. And, you know, part of good policing is the relationships police have with the community. Talk a bit about that and where we've come over the last 20, 30, 40 years as it relates to relationships between the people the police are patrolling and protecting and those people themselves, the relationships. Hey, if you're not if you're not a police department that's engaged with the community, you're a police department that's going to have problems. Um, our our union does everything they can. We we rent out ice cream trucks and go into low income areas and have our officers in uniform giving out those ice creams. We do teddy bears in the backs of police cars and give those out. We do the junior police stickers. We do all those things because we want those young people in our community to know, especially the young people, that when they need a police officer, they can trust that person who's walking up there who's wearing the badge. And and as I say, you have 5% of all races that don't like the police and are not going to ever like the police, but all races support the police as far as if they if they hear a shooting in the neighborhood, they're still picking up that phone and dialing 911. But you have to be engaged in the community. I meet every two weeks with a group of black ministers here at the Houston Police Officers Union. I go through each one of our deadly encounters with them. I read them the synopsis that our attorney did. I pull back the curtain, basically, at the Houston Police Department and show them what's going on, and they tell me what's going on in the community. And when I need these persons to support me, I pick up the phone, and they're standing there behind me supporting me because they know that we are being transparent and we're doing the right thing at the Houston Police Department and they want to be part of that team. We work a lot with our clergy here in Houston. We have a police and clergy alliance that we call it PACA that are always there for us when they need us and we are just very blessed in Houston to have the relationship with our community that we have. Well that's great. And you've, uh, enlisted- even with the activists. I have cell phone numbers of the activists and I'll even contact them and, and say hey look don't jump off on this case because let me tell you what's going on here. We, we don't want fuel being added to fires in Houston, Texas. You bet. And it's important to talk to people who disagree with you. And I'm, I'm so glad that you do that. That shows strength. And again, that shows that word you repeated over and over again, which is transparency. Transparency. Houston PD Union President Ray Hunt, thank you so much for all you do, all the men and women in your force do, all that men and women in blue do across this country. This is National Police Week. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for contacting us. We appreciate it. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We combine two segments this time, random acts of kindness and our affection for anyone who puts on a uniform and gets between us and the forces of chaos and evil. And always be thinking about what their lives are like, what it's like to wake up every day, strap on a gun, kiss your husband or wife goodbye, 
and wonder what will happen at the end of the day, not like most of our jobs. More after these messages. with our American stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. Over the next hour, we are going to tell you one heck of a story about a man whose vision and determination revolutionized the world. You all know his name. Now you're about to know his story. He is arguably the most influential man of the 20th century. He was praised by everyone from Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover to the notorious gangsters, public enemy number one John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde. He's a man who changed how we all live. He gave us the Model T, the V8, and the traffic jam. Henry Ford, uh, I suppose, is a candidate for this elusive title of the most representative American ever because he did and symbolizes so many uh, things that I think are characteristic of this country's historical development. The Model T greatly expanded Americans' mobility, knitting America very close together at the same time that it opened American sense of what was possible. So he liberated at the individual level, the human spirit. Henry Ford was a revolutionary. He changed all of 20th century America. We're living in Henry Ford's world right now. Johnny O'Connor owned an automobile. He took his sweetheart for a ride last Sunday. He was dressed up in his best Sunday clothes. More books have been written about auto pioneer Henry Ford than any other person in the car business. Though he has critics, he put the world on wheels with his famous Model T. But less well-known is the fierce independent streak that led him to wage a lone and heroic battle for the right to run his own business. It was a struggle against the kind of people who think they should have the power to determine what is best for the rest of us. This is the story 
of Henry Ford. The year is 1903. America is becoming the most powerful nation on earth, transformed from a post-Civil War wasteland into a budding superpower by a group of visionaries who battled the impossible to build unimaginable empires that have brought the country into the 20th century. Henry Ford is among this new generation of businessmen, and he is facing a new set of challenges as he struggles to get his company off the ground. I have set out to build the best motor car for popular use. The Ford motor car is durable and light, weighing only 1,000 pounds. It has a four-cylinder engine and is capable of speeds up to 45 miles an hour. It is priced at $900 compared to $1,500 for the average licensed car, which makes it the first car affordable for the common man. Young entrepreneur Henry Ford has created a new kind of car, but in order to sell it, he needs to get permission from the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. Alum owns the patent on the automobile giving them complete control over who can manufacture and sell cars. Alum chooses the winners and the losers for the future of the auto industry. They are, in a sense, a giant car monopoly, and Ford's future now rests in their hands. Thank you, Mr. Ford. We'll be in touch. Thank you, gentlemen. Ford is hopeful he'll be approved by Alum allowing him to start his own business and to pursue his dream for the future of the car industry. When Ford entered the automobile business, people didn't drive their own cars. They had drivers. And so cars were seen as this luxury item. Ford's insight was that cars could be an everyday item. They could be very utilitarian. So that it was within the reach of ordinary people. Ford has spent years developing his car for the common man. He builds his first gasoline-powered horseless carriage at the age of 33 and calls it the quadricycle. But the vehicle is expensive to produce and prone to breaking down. Ford's second attempt, the Model A, is much more suited to the needs of modern America. But he can't begin selling it without permission from Alum. Allen was successful in blackmailing other automobile companies saying you have to be licensed by us or we will sue you and we own this patent. After months of deliberation, the Allen board reaches its decision. Henry Ford's application is rejected. He is one of the first applicants to be refused a license. At 40, he is broke and appears to be all washed up. Alum sees Ford as a loser, and the rejection is their way of telling him that he had no right to be in the business. It's a crushing blow. The auto cartel has stopped him in his tracks. He just needs to find a way around what appears to be an impassable fortification. It's a daunting task, but Henry Ford has been preparing for this moment his entire life.
And when we come back, how Henry Ford did it. And my goodness, at 40, broke. And most people would have just quit. You know, when you're fighting against forces that big. And by the way, this still goes on today. uh, How the government often colludes with private business to block competition. And how how big business tries to block small business. And Henry Ford was not going to be denied. When we come back, more of this remarkable American story, the good and some of the bad, after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the folks at Hillsdale College. And sometimes the segment is a history-history segment, you know, the kind you'd come to expect. Oh, George Washington or Alexander Hamilton, we've done both. Sometimes it's sports. We've done some terrific ones. Sometimes it's the arts. Al Pacino uh, was a terrific hour. So was Martin Scorsese. And so was Frank Sinatra. And then there's business, and we've done an hour on Henry Ford. Uh, We've done an hour on Sam Walton, Ray Kroc. And today, on our This Day in History segment, an American businessman that you may not know but should know was born. subway was 15 cents and the bus was 15 cents. And I got up out of the subway and I reach in my pocket. Now, Crocheron Avenue, where we lived, was about four miles from where I got off the subway. And it was a bus ride. I reached in my pocket and I had a dime. Didn't have 15 cents. And I thought and I thought and I thought and I said, do I ask somebody for a nickel? And my pride just wouldn't let me do that. And I flipped up my collar. I had my briefcase with my bags and I remember I didn't have a pair of gloves and so every few minutes I would switch the bag and I would put the hand in the overcoat pocket and then I'd switch it and I'd put the other hand in the overcoat pocket and all the way for probably a 45 minute or a 50 minute walk uh, I said I ain't going to be poor forever I'm going to be sure of that. I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Ken Langone. I tell people, if you want to really win, get two Jews on their way to the slammer, an Irishman who just took bankruptcy, and a broken-down Italian investment banker, and you're on your way. Now that's exactly how we started. With nothing. Co-founder of Home Depot. Bernie Marcus 
my co-founder partner was a pharmacist. And, and, and I, I tease Bernie that he's the first Jew since Jesus to have a hammer in his hand. <laughs> and no, they, don't, they don't do physical work. No, no, that's all right. A one-of-a-kind life. The Yankee Stadium would not be big enough to hold all the people that have a significant part of what I've succeeded in doing in my life. A one-of-a-kind voice. When I got in the contest with my friend, Mr. Spitzer, who I'm not done with, anybody knows him, tell, him, name at all tell him I'm not done with him, all right? So you say, Elliot, he told over 150 people he's not through with you. Elliot is a gift that never stops giving, as far as I'm concerned. And I can't say enough evil things about him. And, he, and I said to a guy this morning at St. Pat's Cathedral, I said, He's going to keep me from heaven because my, my spiritual belief is that forgiveness is a critical part of being a spiritual person, and I can never forgive him. An honest voice. I do give up names because my passion is so strong for those I like or I dislike that I, that I would miss a great chance not to take a shot. and a one-of-a-kind heart. Home Depot, $2 million. Four guys of no significant import. We have 360,000 associates today. And if you want a good example of capitalism, we have 3,000 people that started in our lot. Now, Home Depot has never once paid anybody minimum wage. We typically pay two or three bucks an hour more than minimum wage. So the argument about minimum wage means nothing to us. We have 3,000 people that started in the lot. They pushed carts in and they helped people load their cars up. They were entry level, as entry level as you'll be, 18, 19 years old. You ready? They're multimillionaires today. Now, if that's not the best of capitalism, I don't know what is. We couldn't do for those people today because of the change regulations on options and everything else. We couldn't give those people those opportunities. And we always believed, look, we all did well. Bernie and Arthur and I and Pat, we all, how much better can you do than we did? It's obvious. And to be able to bring all those kids along, that's the genius of capitalism. Now, there are many of you here that I would probably have a spirited debate with about capitalism. All I can argue to you is, for sure, if you look at my pedigree, you look at my background, why am I grateful and enthusiastic and passionate? Why do I whip when I put this pin on every morning? I look at the ceiling and I thank my grandparents for coming from Italy to America. Because if they didn't do that, none of this would have happened to me. It works. It works. It works better for some people, but it works. And regulatory environment today is the best poisonous and very unhealthy. And who's going to pay the price? The people that need the help the most. The night I graduated from high school, the principal knew my mother because 
He knew it from the cafeteria. He said, well, you know, he said, you and your husband work so very, very hard for what little you have. He said, I'd be less than honest if I didn't tell you. You're wasting your money sending Ken to college. He's not college material, and he'll probably be out by Christmas. I didn't know he told her that till the next day. She's there in tears. I smother her, I'm gonna make it. Ken wasn't keeping that promise, but thankfully there was this one educator who saw someone in him. And after the break, we'll hear about that mentor who saved Ken's life. But before we go to a break, I want to read a story to you because you briefly heard Ken Langone mention former attorney, New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, who says he can't say enough evil things about for all the lives he's wrecked. Spitzer tried to wreck Ken Langone's life, too. In 2004, Spitzer alleged that Langone misled the New York Stock Exchange's Compensation Committee, which he led, about then-Chairman Dick Grasso's exit package. Before Spitzer publicly announced the lawsuit against Langone, which sought an $18 million fine, Spitzer called Langone's lawyer to get a settlement, and Langone wouldn't settle. He knew he didn't do anything wrong, and so he wasn't about to settle. Not many people choose this path that Langone chose. Most just cave. Tragically, but understandably, many folks who know they're innocent settle with the government anyway because they don't want to or can't afford to, emotionally or financially. Battling the government, well, you're guilty until proven innocent. And often face the prospect of having the company itself that they represent or institution dragged through the mud for months, if not years. And the government must always get you on something, anything, no matter how minor it is. Andrew Cuomo then took over Spitzer's job, and Cuomo, Langone, and Dick Grasso decided to meet. And Cuomo starts by saying, we've got to settle this. By the end of this, this meeting, Langone said he was more than a bit emotional, declaring, I don't care what everybody else in this room does, you're getting nothing from me. This may consume the rest of my life, but my children are going to know their father didn't roll over. Langone goes home and then gets a call from Cuomo. He tells him that the stock exchange, which is named in the suit, has offered $35 million to settle. And Langone says back to him, look, it's Dick Grasso's money, but General, and he didn't like being called General, if he gives you a damn nickel, I'll never talk to him again. I'm in this fight for two reasons, for justice to prevail and because I stand by my judgment. And two months later, a court of appeals threw out the case. Langone wrote about the saga in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, The New York Stock Exchange's legal expenses were more than $100 million, which made it perhaps the priciest litigation in the state's history. The number of TV interviews, press gaggles, photo ops, and speeches by Elliot Spitzer indulged in must have set a record. Mr. Fitzer, Mr. Spitzer refused to say how much his office had spent in his pointless endeavor, and he has never expressed a syllable of remorse to the state's taxpayers for his folly, let alone to Ken Langone. It's quite a story that reveals the character of Langone. I also admire Mark Cuban for challenging the federal government in an insider trading case. He said, no, I'm not settling. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm taking this to a trial and to a jury. And he won in a nanosecond. This is Lee Habib. More of Ken Langone's life after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the incredible life story of Home Depot co-founder Ken Langone, who was born on this day in history in the year 1935. And when we left off, Ken was just starting out in college. But his start wasn't so great. And thankfully for him and for all of us, it was saved by a really great mentor. Well, I almost got thrown out first eight weeks I was there and thank God I had a professor that saw something in me I didn't see in myself and he grabbed me and he said if I get around to all your teachers and see if we can pull you out of this nosedive will you make it will you do your share and I said yes and they did and I did and the rest is history then came another mentor Jack Cullen at R.W. Pressbridge this man I worked for was maniacal that the customer never have doubts about what you would tell him. And he would always insist that if he and I were going to go see a client on an, on an investment idea, that the first thing we tell the client are all the things that are wrong with the idea. And then you say, okay, this is everything that could possibly go bad, and this is why I still think you ought to own the stock or the bond. And when we left our first meeting, I said, Jack, why do we do that? <clears throat> he's look, he said, that client is going to pick up the phone, he's going to make a lot of calls, and if all we did was tell him all the good things, and then he found out there were these other possibilities, he's going to assume we will hold him back. This lesson of integrity has defined Ken Langone's life and his Horatio Alger story. Hey, look, I, I, I come from a world where you put your hand out. I don't need a contract. I'll tell you something remarkable. I have never been sued in my life, and I've never sued anybody in my life. And the number of deals I've done where I sit in a room with a guy and I say, okay, this is the deal, and it's crystal clear, and he says, okay. And he comes back, and he's renegotiating the deal, and I said, stop. Right. What, what do you want it to be? And he says, fine, I want this to be this. I said, fine, I'll do it, but I want you to understand something. I'll never do business with you again. I told my three sons that the most precious thing I can think of in my career is I can't think of anybody I've ever done business with that wouldn't do business with me again. That's the acid test. I've had reasonable and spirited differences with people, but at the end of the day, I always felt like I wanted to be sure that if I had to leave money on the table, that's okay. And I, and I tell the kids in my office, you'll make more character by leaving a few bucks on the table than trying to get the last nickel out of the deal. So you gotta have a perspective, but I, I can't think of anything more precious. I, the only thing of any value I'm leaving my sons hopefully is my reputation. Nothing else matters. There's a lot of rich people out there. You hold your nose when you mention their name. I, I, I think they're a loser. I think they're very poor. And Ken knows something about being rich. He's a billionaire. I've never felt as rich as I felt when I started writing these big checks to charities. All of a sudden, I said, holy smokes, I'm rich. Hmm. You know, a poor guy can't give a, a medical center $100 million in one bite. I did it. And it's in the abstract. What the hell am I going to do with $100 million? Hmm. Think about it. it, it it's, got no, it's, it's a number with a lot of zeros in back of it. It has no real meaning. Kenny, I can't be adopted. If okay, well... I <laughs> And, and there's nothing wrong with being rich. 
Nothing absolutely wrong at all with being rich. You know, I couldn't have given NYU the money I've given them for this school and for the medical center and Bucknell for the athletic center and my wife for the boys club in New York. And how this came up, I don't know, but somebody made a calculation that we've given away at least 10 times what we spent on ourselves in our lives. I couldn't have done that. My father would love to have had his name on a building or had his name on a medical center, but he could barely make ends meet. Mm -hmm. So I'm not apologetic. I'm very, I'm proud of the fact that I won. And I hope I did it legitimately and ethically, and you ought to feel the same way. Many folks give Ken Langone this fancy title, philanthropist, but he says they're wrong. He's not one. My dad told me this, and he's right. True philanthropy is not that you give to somebody else. True philanthropy is when you sacrifice to give to somebody else. And I'm grateful that people think I'm a philanthropist, but I don't think I passed that test. I haven't given up one thing. I have beautiful homes, I have a plane, I have you know, nice clothes, I go to nice restaurants. I haven't sacrificed one blessed thing. So I'm still being tested. And he says he's still being tested because Ken's a Catholic. And he goes to Mass every morning at St. Patrick's Cathedral because he knows from where that test comes. He's humble enough to know he needs the help. And we all do. St. Patrick's Cathedral is the fourth most visited tourist attraction in all of New York City, and Ken is leading the fundraising for its $180 million renovation. And as Ken will tell you, his personal contribution to the effort is only possible because of Home Depot's profits. Profits that are only possible because they provided real value to customers. And the voluntary nature of all this and free enterprise is what's so fascinating. And so many young people are not being taught in our nation's universities and high schools. You know, on a personal aside, I was once in Ken's office, and he told me about a speech he was going to give later that day to a group of Harvard folks and how he was going to tell them what they really should do if they care about those two words that you hear a lot on campuses these days, social justice. And it wasn't to protest or work for a nonprofit. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There are many good nonprofits. But if they really cared about social justice, they should become entrepreneurs. They should start businesses. And then they should hire people. Give them a job. What greater social justice is there in giving a man work to provide for their families and give them the dignity of work and to make other folks' dreams possible? and the realization of dreams that then empower you to give back profoundly. And this virtuous circle and cycle, again, never chronicled in our, in our colleges and in our schools, the virtuous cycle and circle of capitalism. Ken's message is one we don't hear enough. That's why we are here at Our American Stories, to bring you these stories you may not have heard, especially about free enterprise and the free enterprise system and its fruits. And... You know, Ken mentioned his reputation, and he mentioned integrity. And most business is conducted on those two foundations. In fact, the word credit uh, is, is uh, well, think about the Latin derivation. 
and it's belief and it's trust, creder. And when a guy gives you a handshake, it should mean something. And in business, you provide a good service to people and they come back for more. And you don't and they don't. And the problem so many of us have who believe in free enterprise with government is that they're not accountable to the people. They can keep putting out a bad service and no one gets fired and no one gets moved aside. And it becomes a beast when there's no accountability, that that government. And it's not that folks like us are anti-government, but more accountability needs to be there. And I think most Americans agree that we need accountability in all aspects of our life, from being a parent to being a student to being an entrepreneur and a businessman and to being a worker for the people, for the taxpayers. And when we come back, more wisdom, more from Ken Langone on this day in history. Ken Langone was born in 1935, the co-founder of Home Depot. And but for Home Depot, my mom could not have afforded to redo our entire basement. Home Depot not only brought the prices down, they taught her in the Paramus, New Jersey store how to do it. Our American Stories and our This Day in History, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where they teach all the great things in life, philosophy, politics, history, art, literature, and sports, a major part of Hillsdale College's curriculum. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their great online courses. Their 10-part series on C.S. Lewis is terrific. Have the whole family watch it. It is really good. And now we left off with Home Depot co-founder Ken Langone talking about the fact that he's not a philanthropist. Despite giving away hundreds of millions of dollars, he believes that because he truly hasn't sacrificed a single thing, not a single solitary material possession. That was his dad's standard. Let's return to this great American story. Ken humbles himself even more, telling the story of a time he was terribly disappointed in himself, and yet how proud he was of his colleagues at the Home Depot and their social justice, the real kind of social justice, not the kind from full-time agitators. Social justice that's only possible because of the profits the company's earned, and is only earned by serving and providing value to customers. And this, this crap, this, pardon me, you can quote me, I, this governance nonsense is nonsense. It's nonsense. The, the, these people that sit on these boards that don't know a stock, don't know a, a, a hammer from a saw, what do they do? When you're talking about the environment and you're talking about governance and you're talking about social issues, they're alert and they're awake and they're diving in. But when you start talking about cost and market share and profits and growth, they glaze over. 
Guess what? Only successful companies can be socially conscious, can give back to the communities. Kmart can't do what we did. By the way, Kmart put through $2 billion to be in the home center business called Builder Square. I remember that. We kicked the air from one end of Manhattan to the other. <laughs> we loved it. It's a technical finance term. No, no, get, but, but, but guess, guess what? You can't do good if you don't have it, the, the wherewithal to do good. I'll tell you, I, I don't mean to get off on Home Depot, but I am going to get off. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a night I'm embarrassed of, and at the same time I was proud of. Not for me, I was embarrassed for what I didn't do, but I was so proud of what somebody else did. When I was on the GE board, when I'm on any board, I only buy their products, even if it's inferior. So I'm on the GE board, what do I do? I only watch NBC, because GE owned NBC. That's all. Anybody, I came in the house, anybody's got some other station on my channel 4, and then I say you can watch all you want on channel 4. <laughs> you know, if you're going to bring you to the dance, right? So anyway, one night, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, I get to the apartment, and on channel 7 there was a reporter by the name of Arnold Diaz. Oh, sure. And he had something, he had a feature called Wall of Shame. And what he did on there, he had uh, a piece about an, uh, uh, a bunch of shysters, this man with eight children. The oldest kid was about 13. He lived out in Long Island. His house burned down, and this insurance adjuster, whatever the hell he was, came and said, if you give me the money for the insurance, I'll rebuild your house. And Arnold Diaz has this man with his wife and his children. They're living in a 48, this is November. This is just before Thanksgiving. They're living in a 48-foot trailer with no lights and no water and no heat. And this man said that the guy took the money and he put a few two-by-fours up and came back and said, I've run out of money, that's all I can do. So Arnold Diaz was featuring this company that ripped them off. Beware of these guys. Uh, I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm devoted to Channel 4. I'm watching, now this to me, pardon me, I am spiritual, this is an act of God. About three and a half or four months later, I'm watching, what am I watching? Channel 7, again. And now, here is this man with Arnold Diaz in front of this house. And in the background, I see something and I can't believe, I, I see all these people with orange aprons on. And they're scurrying around. I went to sleep the night of that story, and I'm, a, I'm ashamed of myself. But one kid that worked for us out in Long Island, the next day went to the store manager and said, we've got carpenters and plumbers and electricians and spacklers, and if I can put together the team to devote, to volunteer their services, will you help us with the materials to rebuild this house? And this man is there with his family, big man, and and Diaz said, well, what do you think? And he said, you know, he said, I've always believed in God, but I didn't know he wore an orange apron. <laughs> That's great. Okay? So I was proud. For, but this is, what, this is what business is capable of. Business is not bad. Business is good. People are bad. The people at Enron were bad. Right. Enron was a company. Unfortunately, it was run by bad people. Home Depot is full of great people because they've cultivated a great culture. 
if you take a faucet, you know the handle, you turn it on or off? If you take the handle off and you take, and you take the stem out, at the bottom of the stem is a washer. The washer sometimes gets caked and gets, you know, brittle. And that's when you get the drip in the faucet. Well, anyway, this guy, apparently his wife was awake, keeping him awake all night because the faucet was going drip, 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 drip. And the next morning, he goes into a Home Depot store in Elmont. And he says to the kid on the floor, do me a favor, sell me one of these things. I can't take my wife keeping me awake all night long. You can give a damn less about the drip. And the kid says, you don't need to know one of these. What do you mean? He says, well, come on with me. And the kid takes him over to the plumbing section and there's little bags of washes, 25 cents for a bag. He takes the bag off the, off the peg, tears it open, gets the right screw, unscrews the screw that holds the washer in, takes the old washer out, puts the screw back, puts the, wash, the new washer in, puts the screw in, says take it home, put it in, it won't drip anymore. Kid took the initiative of opening a 25, the guy's how much away, the kid says nothing, have a nice day. Two months later, I know the story because the man that did it called me to tell me, I didn't know him, and by the way, Every home I have, all the phone numbers are listed. They're so afraid of me. I don't get called to change my cable. I don't get calls to sell insurance. They don't bother me. <laughs> I'm serious. Go see. Check out all my homes are listed. So this guy calls me up to tell me that he wanted me to know that two months later, his wife said, we need a new kitchen. And she said, I want to go down to one of these fancy foo-foo places where they screw you when they sell you these $100,000 kitchens that are worth 35000 bucks." He said, oh, no. He said, I'm going to my friend at Home Depot. And he goes to the store, and he goes to the kid, and the kid said, well, I don't work in the, in the kitchen and bath, but I'll take you to somebody. $72,000 kitchen for a two-cent washer. Now, tell, let me tell you something right now. That kid's on a fast track to go someplace because of his initiative. This is what it should be all about. It's a culture where your fellow man and his needs always come first. It's why Ken and his colleague Pam Goldman have a unique approach about whose phone calls they take first. Last year, one of the great days of my life, a young man called me up. He was a DM out in Long Island, said he needed to come see me the next day. I told you the story. And so he comes in. And I, by the way, Pam knows Bernie calls, parole calls, the White House calls. The only call that comes through first are the kids on the floor of the stores. Home Depot calls come first. Called, and he's got to see me. I said, well, come on in tomorrow. He comes in and he says, you know I had to see you? I said, no, I don't know, Mark. Why would you have to see me? He said, I want you to know something. He said, last spring, I paid off my mortgage. And last winter, this is February, March, I paid off my parents' mortgage. And he said, I got a boat, and my broker at Merrill Lynch called me yesterday to tell me I had a million dollars in my account at Merrill Lynch. I'm a millionaire now. I said, no kidding. He said, yep. He said, do you realize? He said, I was 19. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I came for a job, and all of this happened. I said, well, it only happened, Mark, because you took good care of the customers. You and all these other wonderful people in the store took care of the customers. And they keep coming back. And they do more business, and we do more business. And the stock, the dividends are paid, and the stock goes up. I said, so, Mark, we gave you an opportunity, but you seized it and made something happen. 
and Ken Langones made something out of what his God has given him, what his country has given him. Ken Langone, an American legend. And great job to the whole team on that, and what a great story. And what we walk away with from that is the importance of reputation. And again, that's why he was so angry at what Elliot Spitzer as an attorney general was doing to him. And by the way, attorneys generals are doing this around the country, and very often our government does this to guys who have big and successful businesses. They threaten them, they go in there, they go after the reputation. It's why a lot of people settle. They don't want their names in the papers. It's a pernicious aspect of our government that we're going to continue to point out here on Our American Stories as we tell the stories of remarkable businessmen, because business is a remarkable and rich part of American history. Phil Anschutz is right as he wrote the prologue to his book about the West and the warriors, the business warriors who started the American West. And Ken Langone and the team at Home Depot, well, they created something special for American homeowners and for moms like mine who were taught how to do home improvement and then brought, well, home improvement to their families that made life so much better at a little family like mine and a little house like mine in Dumont, New Jersey. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Ken Langone, born this day in history in 1935.